Hello and welcome back to another episode of Creedal Theology and Culture. I'm excited to talk about our topic for today, but before we do that, I want to mention we were going to have a live Q&A streaming on YouTube with uh, Dr. Larry Jap, who's been on this show obviously several times before and with whom I have a recurring monthly conversation. And we had to cancel that. Um, Dr. Chap fell ill at the last minute. He is fully recovered now, though, and uh, we are rescheduling that. So if you were originally planning on attending, I am sorry for the cancellation. Uh, however, I am pleased to announce that we will be doing that live Q&A discussion on May 19th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm in Mountain Time. Dr. Chap's on Eastern, so we're going to do 8 p.m. Eastern Time again on Wednesday, May 19th. So that's next Wednesday as I sit here and record this. And I'm really looking forward to the discussion. So We've gotten a few uh, a few questions from audience listeners. I'm hoping for more who will chime in with their questions during the live show. But if you'd like to get your question in now and uh, and get it in the queue uh, at this moment, you're happy. You're, you're welcome to email me. I'd be happy to hear from you. Uh, Zach Z A C at CredoPodcast uh, Again, May nineteenth, eight p.m. Eastern. Um, conversation live Q and A with Larry Chap. So I'm looking forward to that. Today on the show, it's just me, no guest, um, but we're talking about something that I think is incredibly important for Catholics to, to to think through and process, and that is this idea of eternal security. Security. It's sometimes called um, in Protestant circles "once saved, always saved." Although in my experience, "once saved, always saved" tends to be more of a sort of caricature of the position. Uh, rather than the the position itself. Um, but I'm talking about this because, one, it's an important uh, topic, but two, I've already done a lot of kind of groundwork on exploring these ideas because I recently did a debate in my diocese on this topic. Uh, it was uh, myself and a, uh, a Baptist pastor, um, a reformed, uh, reformed by persuasion. Uh, he was, I don't think he's a member of the Reformed Baptist. I think it's an independent Baptist church that he pastors, but he is a reformed, um, he, he's reformed by persuasion. Um, and we talked about this issue of eternal security and went back and forth. And um, I learned a lot from him. Hopefully he learned some things from me, but I wanted to sort of talk through some of the things that I came away from that debate thinking about and some things that I learned in the preparation for that debate and wanted to share those things with you. And the reason I think this is so important is because, you know, it's one thing to say, like, once once you're saved, do you know that you're going to heaven? Um, that's, that's, you know, that's the, the issue of what we call certainty. And that's certainly important, right? But we sort of miss the forest for the trees when we focus on certainty. In fact, um, the Catholic teaching is that we can have moral certainty of our faith. And that is that if we profess to love God, if we try to love God, if we are following the precepts, his precepts, his commands, the precepts of the church, if we are doing our best to follow Jesus, then we can have a moral certainty that, that we will go to heaven. Um, that is not to presume that we are God. And of course, you know, what actually what the Council of Trent said was that if anyone says that basically once he's saved, once he's sanctified, that he will never, ever fall out of that grace and that he will absolutely 100 um, percent surety go to heaven, then let him be anathema. Because Trent was combating this idea that I, I think honestly is is more of a caricature of the reformers than anything. But what it was probably concerned with, the council that is, is combating this idea that could get trickled down to followers of the reformers who would think, hey, once I accept Jesus, once I am justified, then no matter what I do, I'm going to heaven. That's that's not the teaching of the church. And so to combat that, um, Trent uh, had its declaration that if anyone said he had 100% certainty of his own salvation, he would be anathema because ultimately none of us have 100% certainty because we are always completely reliant on Jesus Christ for that. 
And as Catholics, we also hold that we can, in fact, fall out of what we call sanctifying grace. Now, the, the reason why we think that and the reformers did not is because of a difference in our soteriological framework in which we think about infused grace versus imputed grace. Now, I, I'll get into the, all that, but what I want to do is first begin this discussion with some stipulations. And I did this in the debate, and I think it was helpful to just sort of focus the discussion and focus our areas of disagreement. So we believe as Catholics, and uh, most Protestants would agree with these, um, these, these four points. The first is that we are saved by grace alone through saving faith in Jesus Christ. We are not saved by our works. And on top of that, none of us is owed the grace from God that we receive, and none of us merits our own justification, okay? The second point to stipulate is that none of us can do anything by our own free will to move towards justice in God's sight. That's right out of the Council of Trent, by the way. None of us can do anything by our own free will to move towards justice in God's sight. The third, God loves each and every human being that he has created and desires our eternal happiness with him. That is a that is a Catholic position. It is not distinctly Catholic in the sense that it's not only Catholics who believe that. And you will, in fact, find some Protestants who, who don't hold to that. In fact, if you're holding to a double predestination or a reprobation view, you actually are holding that, that God is actually condemning, um, actively condemning uh, certain people to hell rather than passively or rather than permitting them to choose something other than God. God is actually actively um, assigning them or reprobating them to hell. So not everyone agrees with that, but for the purposes of our, our discussion um, in, in the morning a couple of weeks ago in this debate, it helped to focus our, our discussion. Fourth, God is always faithful. And so when we talk about whether or not we have eternal security, whether or not we can be confident in our own salvation, uh, of course, we can be confident in God doing his part in our salvation. We can be confident in the faithfulness of God. And so what is at issue in this debate is not God's faithfulness and whether or not God keeps his promises, but whether or not we keep ours. And this is a really, really important thing to footstomp. And I actually did this in the debate, right? We're not contesting God's faithfulness. The question is not, is God faithful or is God capricious? The question presupposes, or the answer to the question presupposes that God is in fact faithful. Of course, God is faithful. He is always faithful. What is at stake is whether or not we can actually reject God and thereby fall out of grace. So those are the sort of the four stipulations. And then a fifth stipulation um, with which uh, the pastor I was debating agreed, but not all Protestants would, is that God God indeed does predestine certain men to heaven. Now, how exactly this works, we don't know, but this is a mystery revealed to us directly in Scripture. And if you if you want to explore more of that and you did not yet listen to my podcast that I did with Dr. Taylor Patrick O'Neill, uh, I think it was in February. I'll look up the exact date here. I encourage you to go back and listen to that because it's really, really good. I learned a ton. Yeah, February 9th, Predestination is a Catholic Doctrine with Taylor Patrick O'Neill. So go back and listen to that if you have more questions about whether or not, uh, you know, or what I mean by predestination and why Catholics believe it. So um, check that out. But those are the, the five stipulations that I made for this debate. The first four, the vast majority of Protestants would agree with. The fifth one, some would, including those, generally speaking, who hold to Reformed theology. So I gave those stipulations so that we could we could focus on the actual question. And the question as framed for the debate was, once saved, always saved, yes or no? Now, again, that's sort of a crass way of phrasing the, the doctrine of... Um, perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints, or some might call it eternal security. 
And I don't know the origin of the phrase, once saved, always saved, but honestly, I suspect that that phrase comes about from uh, polemics that sort of attack the idea because it sounds kind of crass, right? Once saved, always saved, as if, as if um, you know, the reformers held that if someone had said the, the magical words uh, to accept Christ uh, and then did horrible, unspeakable things, they would still go to heaven because once they're saved, they're always saved. The reformers wouldn't say that. In fact, they would say that that person never had saving faith to begin with. And that, that opens up a whole can of worms then about how this this doctrine is sort of circular because it can never be sort of disproven experientially. But um, once saved, always saved doesn't quite, I think, do justice to the richness of the classical reformed position, even though I disagree with that reformed position. But, but I do want to sort of acknowledge that up front. A better way of of, um, thinking about the point of disagreement here, I think, is whether or not someone can lose his salvation. And a more technically correct way of describing that, I think, would be whether or not someone can fall out of a state of sanctifying grace. All right, so let me repeat that. The key question here on which the Reformers and Catholics disagree is whether or not someone can fall out of sanctifying grace. So my answer to that question, can that happen, is yes. And I think that this is evident from Scripture and from, uh, from, from reason as well. But before I dive into some of the scriptural accounts for why I think that position is supported, I want to spend a little bit of time explaining more about that Catholic soteriology that I, that I mentioned in the beginning, right? Infused versus imputed grace. Soteriology is simply a fancy word that means a theology of salvation, And that comes from the Greek word soteria, which means indeed salvation. So when we talk about soteriology, we're really talking about how we are saved. And this is basically how the Catholic Church views the chronology of salvation. The first thing that happens is the Holy Spirit converts us. So the first work of the grace of the Holy Spirit is conversion. And that conversion affects or brings about our justification. The Council of Trent, talking about this, says that, quote, justification is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the interior man, end quote. So that conversion, the first work of the Holy Spirit, is also justification. And that justification is also the sanctification and renewal of the interior man. So moving on with the chronology here, that grace that God gives us at justification is not simply imputed to us. It's not something that God simply clothes us with, but rather that grace is infused by the Holy Spirit into our soul. Look at the the Catholic Catechism, Catechism of the Catholic Church, section 1999, um, that talks about this. It is infused by the Holy Spirit into our soul to heal us of sin and to sanctify us. That grace from the Holy Spirit is in us the source of our sanctification. This is the infused, imputed distinction. There's this line from Luther uh, I, I should actually say it's, it's often attributed to Luther, but I cannot find it anywhere in Luther's works, although there are similar uh, sentiments elsewhere in his writings, that we are basically, um, you know, we are like um, snow-covered dung balls. In other words, there is not something that actually changes our soul at the work of the Holy Spirit, but rather the work of the Holy Spirit uh, is such that it covers us, it cloaks us with Christ's righteousness so that we are viewed righteous by God, but we do not actually become righteous. I think that is a less scriptural position than the Catholic position, which is an infused righteousness. Now, granted, I will concede there are scriptural verses that you can cite in support of the imputed position, but I think that the infused position is actually much better supported scripturally um, and metaphysically. I'm going to point to three scriptural verses here to talk about 
talk about this infused perspective. The first is from John chapter 15. This is when Jesus is talking about um, his vine uh, metaphor. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So a couple things here. First, for apart from me, you can do nothing. This verse gets at something that makes the the Reformed Protestant perspective very sort of uneasy with infused grace. Because it's often misunderstood to teach that if we are infused with God's grace, that all of a sudden enables us to do meritorious works all by ourselves and thereby earn our salvation. Now, it is true that if we are infused by the grace of Christ, our actions can indeed become meritorious, but it is not true that we can still do things on our own that are meritorious. In other words, we are not earning our own salvation, right? It is the grace of Christ that is living in us, that is working through us, that is infused into our souls, that bears fruit in our lives. And that's exactly what what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 15. He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The second thing to talk about in this passage is just the very image of the vine and the branches, right? Branches are not something that are, are viewed as similar to the vine. Branches don't just simply look like the vine. Branches are actually grafted into the vine. Think about the various passages in which, the, the, uh, in which St. Paul also talks about being grafted in, right? We are actually made a part of the mystical body of Christ. We are actually grafted in, and Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness. Let's talk about Romans chapter 5 as well. Verse 5, um, Paul writes, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, the, 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 the Protestant perspective on this verse is certainly not to deny that the Holy Spirit is poured into our hearts, but the mechanism is different and the results are different. It's still an idea of infused righteousness. And so, yes, the Holy Spirit is poured into our hearts, but that does not, it does not fill us with righteousness in the same way that the Catholic position is, that we actually take on Christ's righteousness and become truly righteous in the sight of God. Rather, the Reformed Protestant view is that we become viewed as righteous by God. And the final verse I'll talk about is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this verse is actually cited by um, the Reformed Protestant perspective quite a bit because of what it implies about double imputation. Uh, double imputation being the idea that uh, G- that Jesus, that, that our sins, on when Jesus died on the cross, that God accounted our sins to Jesus and accounted Jesus's righteousness to us, right? So that's what that's what it means when it says for our sake, or that the claim is that's what it means when it says for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, certainly Jesus carried our sins to the cross with him, absolutely. But the double imputation perspective that this is really just a mere imputation totally misses the point. In fact, when you look closely at this verse, the Greek word become there. I'm not a Greek scholar, but my understanding is that that is the Greek word ginomai, which normally means to undergo an actual change of substance. So rather than simply being viewed as righteous by God, because of Jesus Christ's once and for all perfect atonement, in which he did in in fact carry our sins to the cross, because of that, we can become, truly become righteous. We take on Christ's righteousness rather than God simply viewing us as righteous or counting us as righteous. Now, going back to this framework, the chronology of salvation, the third thing to point out is that justification is at the same time acceptance of God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. 
And because of that acceptance, our justification establishes cooperation between, between God's grace and man's freedom. Now, this is where the distinction between infused and imputed becomes really, really important. So when we are justified, we accept God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ because our, our salvation actually comes through grace, right? Uh, and through faith in Jesus Christ. And that acceptance establishes cooperation between God's grace and man's freedom. In other words, that acceptance of God's righteousness in which it is infused into us enables us to freely choose to cooperate with that grace. When we freely choose to cooperate with that grace, that grace can become meritorious for us. Okay, so let's break this down a little bit with some scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So working backwards through this, what is the foundation of our faith? It is Jesus Christ. What is the foundation of our works? It is Jesus Christ. But look at verse 9. We are God's fellow workers. Now, I'll back up a little bit here and say that the uh, the Protestant Reformed position is generally monergistic. In other words, salvation is entirely the work of God. The Catholic framework, and from what I understand, that of the Orthodox and to um, some degree the Lutherans, is a synergistic framework in which the foundation of salvation is certainly God. The initiation of salvation is certainly God. But the framework is synergistic because God gives us the opportunity to freely cooperate with that salvation. And so it is synergistic because there are two things working together. It does not mean that uh, it does not mean that they are equal players in that, right? But it means that there are two players that are working together. So in the synergistic framework, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 backs this up because it says that we are God's fellow workers. In fact, the Greek there for fellow workers is synergos, from which we get our modern word synergy. It's a synergistic framework. We are God's fellow workers in the faith. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, so we're working out our own salvation? What? That sounds like works righteousness. But here's the thing. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it is God who actually enables us, God who infuses us with the graces to do anything at all, anything that is good, and then allows us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. So again, our justification is not simply a monergistic action, but rather a synergistic one. Now, let me reemphasize. It is certainly true that the entire work of salvation springs entirely from God and that God even gives us the grace to receive. So without God, we can't even receive that infused grace. But our will freely cooperates in the act of salvation. God does not violate the human will. Um, now, let me back up and reference Taylor Patrick O'Neill's discussion with me uh, in his fantastic book, Grace, Predestination, and the Permission of Sin, a Thomistic Analysis, in which he explores this idea and others. Um, but there is, a, there is a, a fundamental mystery here that we can't fully understand, and that is that God does, in fact, preserve our free will while also infallibly moving us. And, and that's how predestination happens, right? So God, um, God does, in fact... God does bring about what he intends to bring about, but he does it in such a way that 
he that, that we can still freely choose the good. So he infallibly moves us to freely choose. So if this is true, though, what happens when the human will rejects God? What happens when we violate the first commandment and place another God or idol before our God? Can man fall away? And the Catholic answer to this question is yes. We, and by the way, St. Paul, call this falling away because it results in a loss of divine grace in the soul. That's what we call a loss of sanctifying grace. And Jesus warns us about this in John chapter 15, verse 4. Again, going back to this phrase, uh, this, this metaphor of the vine, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The fact is when we choose something other than Christ, we can do nothing because we are cut off from the very graces of Christ. But if you look, if you look more at that uh, John chapter 15 example, you see a very vivid metaphor of the vine and the branches. And you see Jesus get actually very descriptive on what happens when a branch fails to produce the fruit that it's supposed to produce. He says it is cut off and thrown into the fire. I'm now looking at verse, uh, where is this? Here we go. Verse six, if a man does not abide in me, he is cast forth as a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Okay, so Jesus there is talking about a loss of sanctifying grace. We can, in fact, lose our salvation. And to go into this a little bit more and sort of the scriptural arguments for this, um, uh, I think it's important to point out First uh, Samuel. I was reading First Samuel actually just prior to I gave just prior to this debate, and I was reading it because I'm going through this Bible in a year plan with Father Mike Schmitz. Highly recommend that. Um, if you haven't joined that already, you should. It's never too late. Uh, but I was reading First Samuel, and that was interesting because the book starts with Samuel leading Israel before Israel asks for a king. Uh, and then Israel does ask for a king, and obviously that's not a good idea, and we quickly find that out, but God still grants their request. And in 1 Samuel 10, this man named Saul is anointed, and we learn in verses 9 and 10 that God gives Saul another heart, and that the Spirit of God rushes upon him, and he prophesies. Now that sounds like conversion, doesn't it? It sounds like the grace of the Holy Spirit being poured into his soul, and the scripture, the, the text even says, God gives Saul another heart. But the interesting thing is that just a few pages later, Saul is now displaying disobeying a direct instruction from God, and this is in 1 Samuel 18, um, that it results in a devastating consequence in which we read, quote, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. That sounds like an unequivocal fall from grace, right? So we saw God in 1 Samuel chapter 10 give Saul another heart, and then we saw God in 1 Samuel, I think I said 18, it's actually chapter 16, I'm sorry, First uh, Samuel chapter 16, um, the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul, right? So this is one example among many of, of Old Testament characters and figures being, uh, you know, being used by God for various purposes, being devoted to God, and then falling out of favor with God because of something that they did, some, some other choice that they made to follow an idol, to worship other gods, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this happens time and time again in the Old Testament as we learn about our own human frailties and foibles and failings. In, in the New Testament, we see a lot of indications also that we can lose our salvation. Look at Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 15. This is the parable of the sower. And I won't read the whole thing to you here, but there, the, to recap the parable of the sower, there, the sower's going along and sowing seeds, and some of the seeds fall on good ground, and some of them fall on the path, and some of them fall on rocky soil, etc. And so um, the, the, the key of this text, I think, for these purposes, is that we read about ones along the path, the, the seeds that fall along the path, and in Jesus' interpretive key that he gives the disciples, he says, the ones along the path are those who have heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock, these are the, the rocky soil, are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. 
but these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. Now, the Protestant Reformed, Reformed Protestant response to this is that, yeah, they believed for a while, but they didn't, they didn't really believe, right? And so that's why they fell away in time of testing, because they were never really saved. But, um, but Jesus doesn't say that here. I mean, Jesus says that they actually believed for a while. Um, there, was a, there was a faith, however temporary. And, and, and from my perspective, there's no, there's no such thing as a false faith, right? Faith in God is faith in God. Um, and all faith in God is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, but in this case... They had no root, and as soon as things got hard for them, they fell away. They actually chose something other than God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Therefore, let anyone think that he stands, take heed lest he fall. This is St. Paul warning the church at Corinth about being puffed up with pride because if they get too puffed up with pride, they themselves could fall. And then he goes on to assure them of God's faithfulness, right? No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So two things there. One, reiterating, God is always faithful. We will not face anything that we cannot overcome with the power of the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, you better be careful because you can indeed fall. Okay, uh, chapter six of the letter to the Hebrews. This is this one's pretty pretty remarkable. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So this is a really remarkable passage because in it, the the writer to the Hebrews, probably St. Paul, according to the tradition of the church, is describing these people, get this, who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit and who have tasted the goodness of the word of God. And guess what? Verse six, they still have fallen away. So the classic refrain that those who fell away never had true faith to begin with really contradicts, I think, this passage in which we hear of people who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God. Those are four evidences of a genuine encounter, a genuine conversion of heart, a genuine infusion of the Holy Spirit, and still these people are falling away. Second Peter chapter three, you therefore beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. First of all, amen. Uh, but second, uh, this is Peter warning, um, warning against being carried away with the error of lawless people and losing your own stability. He's writing to believers. He's writing to Christians and he's still warning them against falling away. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, Paul writing to Timothy, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Hymenaeus and Alexander, we think were two previous you know, fellow workers with Paul on his missionary journeys. And he's saying to Timothy, don't be like them who were obviously fighting the good fight with me, but guess what? They made a shipwreck of their faith. Um, and this is important too, right? This isn't uh, one of the sort of proof texts of, of never being able to lose your salvation is the words of Jesus that uh, no one will be able to snatch you out of my hand or out of my father's hand. Um, but there's a difference between someone snatching you out of the father's hand and you sort of choosing to leap out of the father's hand, right? I mean, if, if you're driving a car down the highway, 
Uh, it can be true that no one can force you to jump out the door, but you can choose to jump out the door yourself. And so in this case, First Timothy, First Timothy chapter 1, Hymenaeus and Alexander seem to have done this, to have made a shipwreck of their faith. Notice it doesn't say that God made a shipwreck of their faith. Obviously, God does not do that. He, does, he, he always is faithful. But they made a shipwreck of their faith. Um, so Hymenaeus and Alexander were handed over to Satan in the harsh words of St. Paul. Um, I think this also echoes John chapter 13, verse 27, when Satan enters into Judas, by the way. Oh, but that's a conversation probably for, for another day. Um, so these are some of the sort of scriptural arguments for this. Um, and in, in closing, I want to offer a few remarks. Uh, and then I want to talk about something that I've been thinking about since the debate itself. Um, in, in sort of closing, and in closing the debate, I said some of these things as well, right? That I think the freedom of our wills is born by our experience. Um, we all choose things every day. Now, that is not to deny the sovereignty of God, that God, in fact, gives us the graces to choose those things, but we still choose them, right? God enabled me to get up this morning. Uh, God willed that I got up this morning without snoozing my alarm, and yet I still freely chose to get up this morning without snoozing my alarm. So God can even God can will something infallibly, but he still preserves our ability to freely choose that thing. So God can, because he is God, God, God in fact can infallibly, that means it'll, it'll happen, he, he will make sure that it happens, God can infallibly will something that we freely choose. But, but that also means that God preserves our ability to reject him. That is what we mean by the, the permission of sin. So God permits us to reject him. God never actively wills our rejection, because if he did, he would be implicated in our sin, right? If God is actively directing me to reject him, and therefore sin, uh, then that would make him complicit in our sin. But God, of course, does not sin. Uh, and in fact, we have to go to Aquinas and Augustine to, to sort of understand more about this. But sin itself is not sort of a, a positive being in and of itself. It is rather a, it, it is rather a privation. It is a corruption. It, it is nothingness where something should be. Um, and so God cannot actually actively will sin. But God does permit us to reject him, and therefore he permits sin. Sometimes our encounter with this living God serves to harden our hearts, as was the case of Pharaoh in the Exodus, sometimes fire melts a substance, right? And sometimes fire hardens a substance. Sometimes our encounter with God hardens us, and sometimes it softens us. But I think we should all take uh, inspiration and encouragement and exhortation from St. Paul in the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 9, when he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So I think this is especially potent because this is St. Paul writing, the greatest missionary who ever lived, someone who experienced a conversion on the road to Damascus in which Jesus Christ, he experienced an apparition of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ appeared to him personally and spoke to him by name. And that was, that was the means of his conversion. And this man is still saying, guess what? I am running. I am disciplining my body. I'm keeping it under control so that I am not disqualified. So if St. Paul is saying that he is doing these things, that he is not disqualified, how much more should we also recognize the very real possibility of our own disqualification? So this is, this is sort of a, a quick summation of the Catholic teaching of whether or not we can lose our salvation. And, and a loss of sanctifying grace results from, a, from choosing something other than God, right? So 
at our conversion, at our justification, we are filled with the grace of the Holy Spirit. This is at baptism, right? And that grace stays with us for as long as we remain with it. And as soon as we turn away from it, as soon as we cut off that grace from within our hearts by committing a mortal sin, we need to be reconciled to God. So we go to confession, we make a good confession, and we are reconciled to God. That's the ordinary means, by the way. It doesn't mean that if someone dies without making a confession that they can't possibly be admitted to heaven. That's a, that's a separate and longer discussion. But this, but confession, the sacrament of reconciliation, I should say, is the ordinary means of reconciliation, uh, of restoration of a soul to sanctifying grace. Um, Jesus can sanctify a soul however he wants. And so if there's a, a case, for example, in which someone dies in fully intending to go to confession and fully contrite for their sins, um, the church's teaching is that uh, that, that soul um, can be in a, a state of sanctifying grace. Okay, um, but the, the point is that the sanctifying grace is for God to grant, and God does because God is faithful. But we need to have contrition and ask for it and confess our sins. Um, so after this debate, though, I think the debate went well. I learned a lot. Um, I really appreciated the pastor sharing his thoughts. And the pastor's focus, unsurprisingly, was really on the faithfulness of God and how how God preserves us until the end. And I was thinking about that. One, you know, that just doesn't jive with with my experience. And I think if, if we're being honest with ourselves, almost anyone's experience, right? Because we all know that we do bad things and we continue to sin after we become Christians. And so we're always cognizant of the need for God's grace in our lives and, and the need to be restored to God's grace when we do sin. Um, but I was thinking more about the pastor's position that, that you know, once you're saved, you will be saved, right? So, so rather than saying once saved, always saved, uh, once saved, you will be saved. Um, another way of thinking about this must, might be something like once saved, inevitably saved, or I would probably say once saved, infallibly saved. Um, because going back to this idea of predestination, and again, I encourage you to listen to that um, Taylor Patrick O'Neill discussion on this. If we are predestined to heaven, then what we can say with confidence is that we will go to heaven. Now, we don't know, right? God doesn't give us a, a, a sort of... Um, a birth certificate uh, certifying that we will in fact go to heaven. So that's where the sort of certainty issue comes in. But there is a respect in which we can actually say that for those whom God predestines to heaven, to eternal blessedness, at the hour of our death, God infallibly moves our contingent will to freely choose him, thereby assuring our final sanctification. So in other words, this is not actually all that different from what the sort of classic reform position is. The key distinction is that we can lose our salvation along the way because we can fall out of sanctifying grace. But there is no, there is no disagreement between Catholics and reformed Protestants on the fundamental question of, does God bring about the salvation that he intends to bring about, right? And so I actually, I was sort of thinking more about this and I, I wrote to, uh, to Dr. Taylor Patrick O'Neill uh, because he's the he's the guy who I know who is most well-read on these issues from a Catholic perspective. And I asked him this, this exact question. I said, is there a sense in which it would be accurate to say that for those, let, let me actually back up. This this is what I said to, to Taylor. Um, I said, walking away from this debate, I had a question I was thinking that you may be able to help me with. The Protestant reform position obviously obviates or obliterates the freedom of the will, and so there is no authentic possibility of falling out of sanctifying grace because the will cannot choose other than God once the soul is justified. Catholics obviously believe that we can and do fall out of sanctifying grace. And so in that sense, we obviously are not once saved, always saved. But here's my question. Is there a sense in which it would be accurate to say 
that for those whom God predestines to eternal blessedness, at the hour of our death, he infallibly moves our contingent will to freely choose him, thereby assuring our final sanctification. If yes, then I think the debate really falls back on the nature of our wills and whether or not we can fall out of grace on our way to final glory. And uh, Taylor was very gracious in, his, gracious in his response to me and wrote me a long email, but I will just, um, I will just read an excerpt from here. He says, um, yes, I think that you are absolutely right. There is a distinction between the doctrine of once saved, always saved, and the doctrine of infallible predestination. At the risk of oversimplifying or overgeneralizing the Protestant positions on this, I do think that once saved, always saved maintains that it is impossible to lose sanctifying grace. The Catholic who maintains predestination has no issue rejecting this. We recognize that because sanctifying grace is not merely forensically imputed, but requires the participation of the human will as acting freely, that's the infusion we talked about, this presupposes the ability for the will to turn away from its participation in grace. Otherwise, the participation itself would not be meritorious, i.e. It, it would be something done to me rather than something in which I participate volitionally, i.e. in the will. And so, through grave sin, the soul in sanctifying grace can turn from being in a state in which it would be saved if it died in that moment to a state in which it would not be saved if it died in the next moment. And this can't happen, or this can happen over and over many times. This position is really more about the nature of the will and merit than it is about the infallibility of election. What predestination maintains is that while the creaturely will can gain or lose sanctifying grace, those movements, including the final perseverance of the will in grace or not, are subject to divine providence. And this is infallible. God might, and probably often does, will that one who shall be infallibly but freely saved moves in and out of states of grace, meaning that justification and sanctifying grace are, for this man, quite fallible. Not only are they potentially fallible, but they do indeed fail. However many times this man has fallen into grave and culpable sin. All right, so a bit of a mouthful there, but I think it's an important distinction. And so the, the issue of disagreement between the pastor's position and mine was not actually is someone infallibly saved by God once, once, once they are predestined? The issue is rather, can you fall out of a state of sanctifying grace? And the reason why the Catholic says you can is because of the importance of the freedom of the will. Now, the reformers were afraid of the freedom of the, of the will because they did not see a way in which maintaining a freedom of the will um, could preserve the sovereignty of God. Uh, in other words, they rejected compatibilism in which the sovereignty of God and the freedom of the will are mutually compatible. Um, but we, as Catholics, actually hold that, no, God is, of course, sovereign. God is in charge of everything, and God is responsible for every action that we do, in, in a certain sense, at least, right? Either uh, actively directing or permitting. Um, but that God, when God does infallibly move us, he does so so that we can still pursue that freely. So God's infallible movements preserve our free will. And that is why when we do something good, even though it all comes from Christ, we can still, it can still be meritorious for us because it is, as Taylor said, it is not something that is done to us, but it's something that we participate in by virtue of our free choice, even if we are infallibly moved to that thing. So that's the point of disagreement. That is, um, and, and that's, that's what I try to emphasize in this debate that I did with the pastor um, and I appreciate uh, Taylor's clarifying remarks to me because they were helpful for me in just sort of clarifying my own, my own thinking and my own thoughts on this. And I think it's important because this opens up a broader issue about how many of the Reformed and Catholic positions are actually not as far apart as is often claimed or thought by either side. And how much more, how much, how much more could we do uh, together if we were to recognize our areas of common ground? How many more 
um, conversions um, could we facilitate if more Reformed Protestants recognize that there are a lot of those strands of thought uh, that they currently enjoy in their Reformed denominations that are in the Catholic Church and even have been there for longer, right? So, for example, I don't think I've mentioned this on the show before, but I recently learned that John Calvin didn't read Thomas Aquinas. I mean, we can't be sure, but some of the best scholarship today suggests that John Calvin simply did not read Aquinas. That's incredible. And it makes me wonder how much he would have agreed because there are a lot of things that Calvin says, not all of them, of course. There are a lot of things that Calvin says, though, that Thomas says better. And if, if Calvin had the benefit of learning from the angelic doctor, uh, Calvin might have, who knows, he might have been Catholic. So anyway, we will end there. I'm really looking forward to the discussion with uh, Larry on Wednesday, though. And so please join us 8 p.m. Eastern next Wednesday, the 19th of May. Uh, bring your questions. Send them along to me if you have questions. In the meantime, Zach, Z-A-C at credopodcast.com. And send me a note. Let me know what you liked about this episode, what you didn't like, what I got wrong, what you think I got wrong, uh, what I missed. Um, always open to fraternal corrections. So send me a note, Zach, Z-A-C at creedlepodcast.com. And until next time, God bless you.